0: This morning's message is entitled Philadelphia. Uh, So we are going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 this morning. And I I believe that this is a fairly straightforward passage. Uh, But we are going to get into, uh, we're going to lean in to some of the future passages that are in Revelation. We're not going to read them, but we're going to kind of hint at them this morning. About where we're going, because uh, Jesus in this discourse measures uh, mentions some things that are related to uh, what's going to be happening here pretty soon uh, in um, uh, in uh, Revelation, and so I'm excited about uh, the to the Church of Philadelphia. Okay, so this discourse to the Church of Philadelphia is one of two passages that doesn't contain a negative. Uh, to the church. So, if you if you read read these seven churches, the majority of them are uh, are discourses that have sort of a a positive front. They have an introduction, a positive front statement. There is a criticism, and then there is a solution, if you will, something that you can do in order to that the church can do that the church can do to solve the situation that it's in. Philadelphia, there is no criticism of the church. So let me just tell you a little bit about the church, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to dive right into this message. Uh, so the, the sermon title is entitled simply, Philadelphia, the Holy, True, and Sovereign Savior. Now the city of Philadelphia was, a, uh, was an important city during the first century it was an important city. Not only was it an important city, it was a fairly uh, it had a rich history. Of course, the name of Philadelphia stands for Brotherly Love. Right, and it still does to this day, even in the city uh, that is in Pennsylvania. But in AD 17, the city was destroyed by an earthquake, absolutely crumbled by an earthquake. Now that plays a pivotal role to this morning's message. So I want you to remember that this this city was clocked all the way down to the ground. I mean, just to 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 uh, to rubble at the end of the ground, to the bottom of the ground, and because of this. Uh, it was had, it had to be rebuilt, and it was rebuilt by the Romans, and there was a strong allegiance to the Roman occupation because they rebuilt the city. Now, folks, I don't know if you've ever been to a city that has been struck by an earthquake. I don't know if you've all ever had that opportunity, but a few years ago when I flew to Haiti for that week-long mission trip, of course, Haiti at that time uh, a few years before, had been struck by an earthquake that killed thousands of people, thousands upon thousands of people. Um, they never found many of the people. Now that was several years before we went to Haiti. When we arrived in Haiti, buildings were still in rubble. There was still wrought iron just twisted and curled everywhere. There were bricks everywhere. There were children on the side of the street, who lost parents, and they are ba- basically now uh, stranded, if you will. They're, they're left to uh, serve on their own. In fact, some of these orphanages will, in Haiti will drive by these places, by, drive through Haiti, drive through the streets of, of Haiti, and see some of these children on the side of the street, and they'll, they'll basically ask, do you have a family? Where is your family? And in some cases, the parents are dead, Or in some cases, the parents have just left them there, and they are left to fend for themselves. And so then they get taken into these orphanages. And so it's a a very difficult existence. And Philadelphia was experiencing this, but the Romans came in, and they reconstructed the city like Legos, put it back together, and it was a vibrant city. And so they were very... Uh, They were tied closely to the Roman government, to to that Roman occupation, and they were very thankful for it. Now, this discourse opens again with a prominent description of Jesus, the Lamb of God, and he uses three descriptors of himself, holy, true, and then, and who has the key of David? So let's read that opening verse, verse 7, and then I'm going to pray. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the holy one the true one who has the key of david who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one will no one opens let's pray father we are thankful for your son this morning we are thank you thankful for christ who is the holy one who is the true one and who holds the key of david who opens doors, who closes doors, who is sovereign in all things. Father, we are thankful for the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, that He was obedient unto death. And we're thankful for what that means for us. Father, I pray this morning that You would give us faith. Faith to believe, faith to follow, uh, faith to endure the pressures and the pains and the struggles of this life, that we would not fall into temptation, but rather that we would hold fast to the gospel and to Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Let me read that again. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, let's just look at those three descriptors very, very quickly. Let's try to understand what Jesus, because this is Jesus saying this about himself. First of all, he says, the Holy One. What does that mean? The fact that Christ is called the Holy One emphasizes the characterization that Jesus is set apart from everything else, from everything else folks. I was, um, and I may have mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned this to you all, sometimes I can't, I don't remember where my stories go. You know, it's at that point in my life where I just tell a story and I just assume that I've told it to everyone. But I will tell you this one. Uh, The university or Harvard University uh, in Massachusetts uh, was founded uh, very early in the birth of this country. It was actually founded in the 1600s and harvard was founded as an institution believe it or not to train clergy the puritans who came over founded harvard in order for them to, for their clergy they felt it was important that the clergy had an academic background that they had uh, that they were able to have logic and be able to understand things and to teach and learn and all these things so they founded harvard with an with a theological underpinning. That's a really important history of the universe, of Harvard University. I keep wanting to say the University of Harvard, of Harvard University. However, over time, like many things have happened, culture, you know, kind of swarms in, swoops in, if you will, invades these places and things start getting twisted and and start getting manipulated and start becoming more worldly, if you will. It happens to many universities. It's happened to some universities here in Kentucky, to some colleges in Kentucky that uh, that started out with a very strong faith-based grace, built upon grace uh, background, but has since kind of gone by the wayside. We have some that are very close to Frankfurt area. My former college that I went to undergrad to uh, was Uh, built on this theological background, but it has since left that. So this is a fairly common thing that we see. The reason why I bring up Harvard is that recently many of these universities and these colleges have chaplains at these places, and some of them, especially if it's a large place, has multiple chaplains. Well, Harvard has several chaplains and they have chaplains that serve all the different denominations. It's not just Christian. It's Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, evangelical, Catholicism. All across the board, there are these different chaplains. They just voted for the very the brand new president of the chaplains at Harvard. And the new president who's been there since around 2005, is an atheist. and he is the president. Of all the chaplains at Harvard. Now, there's some reasonings behind that, so it's not as nefarious as it sounds, I promise you. Uh, but I find it interesting that a university that was built on, theolo- on the Bible, was built on instructing clergy, now the chief, if you will, the chief chaplain at that university is an atheist, is a humanist, in fact. Now, why do I bring that up? Christ is not like all other gods. He is different. He is unique. He is special. He is holy. The reason I bring up Harvard is that we have chaplains that serve all these other different worldviews as if Christianity is somehow that the, the that Christianity is somehow lumped in there as if Christ is just one of many different choices that lead to eternity, salvation and eternity. But folks, that's not true. Christ is the Holy One. He is set apart. There is no one like Jesus. For, for all that the world tries to do, to make Jesus, to dumb down Jesus, to water down Jesus, to make Him more like us, the truth is it can never happen because Christ is the Holy One. The holiness of Christ is foundational to His divinity and is the gold standard by which Christians are to model themselves. We do not ultimately look to each other to define what holiness is we look to christ now it's helpful it's helpful for young christians to be molded by more mature faithful christians to look to those more mature christians as examples that's important that's a necessity that's a thing that we need in the church but ultimately christ is the gold standard Because what happens when you model yourself after an older, mature Christian and they fall? They fail. Because it's going to happen. It's at that point where you look to Christ. And any good disciple who is discipling others is going to tell them that very thing. Look to Jesus. Jesus also says that he's the true one. There is no falsehood in Christ. Absolutely none. Christ will not tell you a lie. He will not lead you astray. When it says that Christ is the only way to the Father, that He is the way and the truth and the life, that is 100% without fault. He is the only way. Our culture is looking for every other way. To get to God except through Christ. Because when you go through Christ, there are expectations. There is an expectation that you will give yourself over to Christ. That your life is now His. Every other denomination or faith or religion, you can keep your life. You can keep living your life as you want, but when it comes to Jesus, you now no longer own your life. Your life is not your own. It was purchased with the blood of Jesus. I have heard graduation commencement speeches where the speaker will come up and he will stand on that stage or she will stand on that stage and say something similar to this. This is your life Live it to the best that you possibly can. And I want to scream to the top of my lungs, this is not your life. Your life was a gift from God. Now live it for Him. And finally, the third descriptor is, it says, has the key of David. Now that's a really awkward phrase, right? Right? It says, it says here, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, no one opens. Now, that is a curious phrase. What does that mean? Ultimately, Jesus here is using messianic language. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. And he's also saying that he controls the key of David, who opens and shuts doors, which proclaims the sovereignty of Christ. If I could say it this way. Who opens the door to salvation? Christ. Who shuts the door of salvation? Christ. He and he alone has the keys. Remember in John 10:7, Jesus says, so Jesus again said to them, speaking to the disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. What does that mean? He doesn't say, I am a door, right? I am a door. He says, I am the door. There is only one door for these sheep to go through, and he opens it. And when it's closed, you're not opening it. You can go up and beat on that door as much as you can by your own works you can say, "Lord, look at all the things I've collected in my life, open this door." And there is only one thing that will open that door and it is the blood of Christ that is painted at the top of that doorpost. That's it. That is the only thing that will let you in is the blood of Christ because he has the key to the door. In the Gospel of John, Jesus was telling his disciples this that he is the only way to salvation. The discourse in Revelation reminds us that Jesus holds the keys of salvation and condemnation. Let me be very clear about this. This is important. Many well meaning Christians will say Jesus saves, that God saves. But when it comes to condemnation, they will say, we send ourselves to hell. We send ourselves to hell by not believing. Folks, that's a really pretty painted picture that waters down the sovereignty of God. Christ opens doors and He shuts doors. Who has the power to send someone to hell. Folks, you do not have the power to send yourself to hell. You do not own that power. Satan does not own the power to send people to hell and to condemn. Satan can't do it. Satan does not hold the keys to hell. Christ does. So it's up to God whether the door is open whether the door is shut and it is by faith that we are saved not by works which leads us into the next point I know your works Revelation 3 8 through 9 I know your works behold I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut I love that you have but little I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Can we just pause right there for a second? Let's just pause there before we go into the, the, the verse 9. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. When under extreme pressure to follow the culture or your unbelieving peers, it takes a supernatural faith to do what is right. It takes a supernatural faith. If you let me just if you are following Christ faithfully this morning in your life, if you are walking faithfully behind him, that is not your faith that is allowing you to do that. That is a supernatural faith that God has blessed you with. A supernatural saving faith that allows you to follow the faith. Follow Christ and be with the bride of Christ. Because if it were not for that supernatural faith, we would cling to the culture. Why? Because it's the easiest thing in the world to do. It's just easier to be like the world. You don't get condemned by people. You don't get hated by people. You don't get maligned by people. Like Smyrna, there's no criticism for this church in Philadelphia. Because under the pressure to succumb to the patterns of culture, they have not denied the name of Jesus. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What does it mean that they have not denied my name, denied the name of Jesus? We need to clarify this. In the simplest manner of speaking, it means that when given an opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord, they did not refuse to do so. They confessed Christ. They did not deny Jesus as Peter did in the Gospels. But we should pause right there and go just a little bit further because not denying Jesus is more than a verbal agreement or an assent to Christ. When Jesus says, I know your works, it implies that they have kept true to Jesus, not just in word, but also in deed. It is possible to speak truthfully about Jesus in word, but your deeds deny Christ. It happens every day. Look at the percentages, the statistics of individuals who claim to be Christian. Folks, I challenge you in this way. If everyone who said they were a Christian were actually genuine Christians, we would not be dealing with the issues that we are dealing with. We would not be dealing with the levels of hatred towards one another, prejudice towards one another, racism towards one another. We would not be dealing with those issues to the level, there's always sin, but we would not be dealing with them to the level that we are, where it seems like everything that we are trying to do is just trying to burn it all down. If everyone who said they were a Christian were actually a Christian, we wouldn't be struggling the way that we are. But the fact remains that you can proclaim Christ in word but deny Him in your deeds. And we see that every day. There is an open door in front of this church, though, in the front of the church of Philadelphia, that no one can shut. When Jesus tells them that there is an open door in front of them, folks, that would stir up an encouragement in them that would just make them want to press on even in the face of being maligned and persecuted by the government i know your works behold i have set an open door set before you an open door which no one is able to shut i know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name behold i will make those of the synagogue of satan who say that they are jews and are not but lie Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is in contrast, all right, the, the church of Philadelphia is in stark contrast to the unbelievers in that city. So like the previous discourses, Jesus calls the people who are unbelievers a synagogue of Satan. May that never be named called of us. May we never be called the synagogue of Satan. These individuals who claim they are Jews with their mouths, but lie with their actions. What is their reward for this? Here's their reward. That one day they will kneel, not just at the feet of Christ, but at the feet of people who are reigning with Christ. Imagine this right now, that the oppressors will one day be subservient to those who call Jesus Lord. And he's encouraging them in this. He says, listen, wait just a little longer. I'm coming soon. These individuals who are persecuting you, who are oppressing you, who are holding you down, who are killing you, one day they are going to get theirs. You keep your eyes on Christ. One of the biggest distractions that we as the church can have is try to fight every battle that is actually the Lord's battle, not ours. There are some battles that we just need to leave to the Lord. We give that one to the Lord and we just keep our eyes focused on Christ because, folks, I'm going to tell you, that is hard enough in the culture that we are in in the world that we are in, with the sin that is all around us, with the sin that we are tempted to, sometimes it is all that we can do to keep our eyes on Christ. But if we are always distracted with what the world is doing and all this kind of stuff and fighting all those little battles, folks, keep your eyes on Christ. Just wait a little longer. I'm coming soon, Jesus says. Which leads us to Revelation chapter 3. Verses 10 through 13. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love this passage. I love the language of being pillars in the temple of God. Let me explain that just for a little bit. First of all, let's go back up to the top verse, verse 10, where it says patient, what I call patient endurance. The faith of the church... And their endurance through the persecution will lead Christ to keep them from the hour of trial that is coming soon. Okay? Now, let me explain this because there are some people that get this a little twisted, a little turned on its head. All right? Popular culture would have this this verse mean something that it really isn't intended to mean. First, while Jesus is specifically referencing the church in Philadelphia we can extrapolate this out to other faithful churches, okay? If we are a faithful church, we can, we can trust this promise that when he says that he is going to keep, keep us from the hour of trial, what does that mean? There are some that believe that that means that Christ is going to rapture the church pre-tribulation, I think that we all know the book of Revelation enough to know that we're getting ready to get into a, a, a period, all right, several verses that talk about this tribulation that's going to occur. And what many believe that this passage is saying is that for those who are faithful, churches and Christians who are faithful, that Christ will not have them go through that, that He will rapture them, not your clothes, just your bodies. all right. Rapture. Uh, up to heaven so that you don't have to be here during the tribulation. Of course, that is what the entire series of the books left behind are built on, that the church supernaturally is taken up into heaven by God. Now, folks, I don't believe that that's true. I don't believe that that's what that means, and I'll explain why. I believe that it means, when it says He's going to keep us from the hour of trial, it means that Jesus will sustain them through the coming tribulation, not remove them from it, okay? Because there is much more evidence in Revelation and other passages of Scripture that the church will be present during tribulation, but that they will be spared the bulk of the pain. Remember in Exodus, when God was raining down the plagues upon the Egyptians, God did not remove His people from that trial and from that tribulation, but He protected them from it. They did not endure the same level of trial and pain that the Egyptians, that the oppressors dealt with. They were protected from that, those who were faithful. We see that the trials that are coming are meant for those who dwell on earth. They are going to be used as judgments Against individuals who dwell on earth, and throughout most of Revelation, that phrase "dwell on earth, earth dwellers," if you will, implies unbelievers. That's what it means. So this tribulation that is coming is a judgment upon unbelievers, not on Christians, not on the Bride of Christ who remains faithful. These are on Christ, these are on unbelievers. And one of the reasons why I believe that is I believe that we are actually dealing with the tribulation as we speak, okay? So I, for one, am not an individual who watches the news waiting for every single hammer to fall in the Middle East and every contract to be signed in the Middle East, expecting that that's another bowl, that's another cup, that's another whatever, that's another rider of the red horse or something like that. Those are all apocalyptic Uh, that's all apocalyptic jargon to describe the tribulations that we are experiencing now in the church age. It says, hold fast. The second part of that passage. Jesus says, I am coming soon. And then he says, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. What does that mean? While you are enduring the persecution. While you are enduring the oppression, endure it by holding fast to Jesus and holding fast to the gospel. He's just saying, don't fall prey to the world. Don't fall prey to what the world is going to do to you. Keep the gospel and hold fast to Jesus. It's an encouragement to remain faithful. And those who prove to to be unfaithful will lose their metaphorical crown. They'll lose it. And then he says to the one who conquers, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city, my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I want to spend the rest of the message explaining that little piece right there. Because there are individuals, that, and we're going to be talking about this more in depth later on, that believes that there is going to be a literal new city, a new Jerusalem, with a new temple and new construction, and that we are going to inhabit that, and it's going to be a perfect city that's a perfect cube and all of that. Sounds really nice. It sounds really neat. Lots of Hollywood movies could be made out of that description. Folks, that's not what's happening here. Let me explain to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, what is a pillar? A pillar is a large post, if you will, that holds things up. It's substantial. It's, meant, it's a structural thing. It's a load-bearing pillar, if you will. Well, folks, if we take this temple of God literally, it means that we are literally going to be marble pillars. Well, that can't be what that means, right? Think back to what the church in Philadelphia dealt with. The church crumbled under the earthquake. It crumbled under the earthquake. What he is saying to the church is that you will not crumble. You will not crumble. You will not fall. You are going to be a pillar in the temple of God. What is the temple of my, of my God. The temple is Jesus and the Father. We are going to be a pillar with Christ. We will stand forever with Christ. We will not fall. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, meaning we will stand with God for all eternity. Never shall he go out of it. You're never going to be kicked out of God. When you are with Christ, you will not be removed. When you put a pillar up to hold everything up, you can't move that pillar, right? You will not be moved. You are with Christ for all eternity. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. What does that mean? It means that you are owned by God, you are his. He has put his name on you, you are sealed. Folks, it's not literal. He's not going to tattoo you, okay? All it means is, He says, You are mine and I am yours. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Folks, that's the bride of Christ. That's the bride of Christ. If we are in the bride of Christ now and we are faithful, we will continue to be with the bride of Christ for all eternity. And Christ will be among us and He will be with us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What does Jesus want from us? He just wants us to cling to the gospel and to Himself. That's what He wants. Just remain faithful. It would do us good, individually, if we would survey our own lives, survey all that we're doing, and say, is this activity that I participate in on a regular basis, is this honoring Christ? Don't you think that would be a valuable endeavor? Am I loving the way Christ would call me to love? Am I really loving one another the way Christ would call me to love one another? More, more Much more difficult than that, am I loving those who are completely different and antagonistic towards me the way Christ would love them? Or am I always trying to get the upper hand? I'm just going to tell you, in the world of social media, everyone is really brave. And the truth is is that many people who you meet face-to-face, who are wonderful people, turn into jerks as soon as they turn on Facebook or Twitter. Immediately. It's It's like it's open season to be a jerk. Christ does not surrender his lordship as soon as you turn on social media. Christ does not surrender his lordship when you start talking about politics. Christ does not surrender his lordship when you turn on the TV or when you look on the internet or when you're dealing with your children or when you're dealing with your enemies or when you're at work. Christ is never surrendering His Lordship. So whatever you do, do for the glory of God. He never turns it off. And so I will conclude with this. You have heard many individuals... um, especially here recently, and by the way, this is not, I promise you, not a political statement. It actually is a statement that supports what we're talking about today and what we're going to be talking about in the future. I don't believe that the term mark or the phrase mark of the beast has been more popular than it has been in the last year. There are people claiming the mark of the beast who have no idea where that even comes from. It's like apple of my eye and writing on the the wall. We say those things. We don't even know where they come from. And all of a sudden, people are saying, don't get that vaccine. It's the mark of the beast. Everybody's heard that, right? Folks, the vaccine is not the mark of a beast. It's not. That is a really bad interpretation, a bad hermeneutic of that scripture. It's not the mark of the beast. Now, why do I bring that up right now? It's because of this. The mark of the beast is not a thing. The mark of the beast is you and I rejecting Christ. That's the mark of the beast. It's not a tattoo. It's not a chip. It's not a barcode. It's not a credit card. It is the rejection of Christ. That is the mark of the beast. It is following the beast rather than following Christ. And the reason I bring that up is this, because there is also a mark or a seal of the Holy Spirit. What is the mark of a believer? If the mark of the beast is rejecting Christ and following following the ways of the world, then what is the mark of the believer? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness self-control. There's a song about it. I don't know it. Okay? It's those things. The seal of the Holy Spirit is trusting Christ. It's when Christ saves you. That's the seal. Folks, this morning, if you believe in Christ, you are sealed. If you believe in Christ, you don't have to worry about the mark of the beast. If you have trusted Christ with your life, if Christ has saved you, you don't have to worry about rejecting Him. Why? Because that open door is in front of you, and it's not closing for you. It's just not. When the Lord calls you home, you will walk right through that thing. And it won't be confusing like the entrance and exits at Walmart. I don't know which way to go in there. There's one door to go into eternity. It is kind of similar to Walmart though because there will be a greeter on the other end. But it'll be Jesus. Folks, trust Christ. And yes, that was the corniest appeal to salvation I've ever made in my life. But it holds water. (laughs) Folks, I can't wait to walk through that door and see Jesus. I just can't wait. I cannot wait. It's appropriate for us to, to mourn those who have passed on. But folks, what they are seeing cannot compare to what we are dealing with. I mean, it's just being face-to-face with Christ. It's worth every bit of what we're dealing with right now. It's worth it. So let me encourage you, just stay true to Jesus. Father, we thank you for this time that we've gathered together, Lord, to worship. And we just ask you to continue to help us be faithful. Father, I pray that we would not forsake the gospel, that we would not forsake the work of Christ, and that we would not forsake the cross, but that we would boast in the cross, and that even through our trials and the tribulations and the struggles that lie ahead, we would remain true. Father, pray. I pray that we would be models of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness, and self-control. Those marks of a believer that are only possible through the supernatural faith that you have gifted us with. Help us to keep that, hold fast to it, and remain faithful. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.